So uh, I recently heard a very unique strategy uh, for hunting, of all things, and it is a, a strategy that Indian farmers use for catching monkeys, supposedly. And so the strategy is you take a coconut and you cut a hole in it, and then you carve out the insides and make sure it's empty, and then you slide a banana in through the hole, and then you tie the contraption to a tree somehow, and then some unsuspecting monkey goes walking by, and they smell the banana, and they reach their hand in, and they can get their hand in easily. But when they grab a hold of the banana, they can't get their hand out. So if they just let go, they'd be free, but they don't want to let go. They want that banana. And so, of course, then the hunter comes along, and there goes the monkey. So uh, if you're anything like me, uh, hearing this monkey-catching strategy uh, might sound all too familiar. So much like this monkey, most humans uh, get pretty attached to what they want. Like they grasp hold of something. And then uh, even once we find that we're suffering over something or we're struggling or we're stuck on what we want, we find it very, very difficult to let go. So in some ways, we find that we are held captive by our own desires. Um, and our inability to let go is really causing us to suffer. So letting go, it sounds really simple, of course. And yet the capacity to let go often really evades us. It's often much more difficult than we think it should be. And, uh, and more often than not, actually being able to let go takes a whole lot longer than we want it to take. Um, the Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, uh, used to say, 70 to 80% of spiritual life is knowing we're clinging and not being able to let go. So letting go isn't easy. And most, many people in the West grow up hearing the advice, you know, like, oh, just let it go. No big deal, just let it go. And so we aspire to that, except very few of us are actually taught how to do that. Like, how do you actually let go of things? So um, that's my hope for tonight, is to talk about how do we actually practice letting go? And my hope is, is to offer a uniquely Buddhist perspective on this. Um, and uh, maybe I should say now, uh, the, what I found to be the secret of letting go is actually letting be. So we'll be talking about the relationship between letting go and letting be tonight. And in terms of the relationship to Buddhism, um, uh, for any, who was here last week when Kodo spoke? Is anybody? Okay, great. So uh, Kodo taught on the Four Noble Truths. And um, this was, the Four Noble Truths was the, Buddhist, the Buddha's first sermon that he gave, and it's often considered his most central teaching. And that teaching is actually a letting go teaching. So right at the, the very heart of the Buddhist canon, we find teachings on letting go. So it's, it's really highly relevant for our practice.
So just a review. Um, the, what, what are the Four Noble Truths? So first, first Noble Truth, there's suffering in this life. And when I say suffering, the Pali word is dukkha, but uh, that can be translated in a variety of ways. So it can be dissatisfaction, um, uh, discomfort, um, uh, uh, any levels of um, like uh, stress is another common one. Any levels from you know mild discomfort in a moment, like oh the restaurant just served my food and it's a little too cold. I don't really like this. To you know the most uh, horrific forms of human suffering. That's all encompassed under this term dukkha. So that's the first noble truth. Second noble truth: um, the source of suffering is craving. So we think that the source of suffering are all our problems, right? But actually, what the Buddha is saying is that the source of our suffering uh, occurs in our own heart, and it's our, our own craving and aversion. So craving and aversion are just two sides of the same coin. Um, so it's wanting and not wanting. Um, greed and hatred. These are different words for the same thing. So, um, uh, so source of suffering is craving, second noble truth. Third noble truth, there's freedom from suffering. So this is liberation, enlightenment. Freedom's possible. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, the path of awakening, the path that we walk um, to realize freedom. So um, what I'm most interested in for this talk is actually the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth, from craving and clinging to letting go, to freedom. To happiness, right? So that's what we're doing. That's what letting go is, is that movement from dukkha, from suffering, to happiness. And part of what's so profound about the Four Noble Truths is that it offers, um, it identifies one diagnosis, one treatment, and one cure for all of the myriad types of suffering. It all boils down to craving and clinging. And so hopefully through the talk, we'll start to see the ways that, um, that we project our suffering onto external circumstances, um, but that that actual viduka lies in our own heart. So there's an old Zen story, and it's about uh, two traveling monks. And so... Uh, at some point during their travels, they get to a river. And when they get to the river, they see a young woman there. And she's hoping to cross the river, but she's a little freaked out by how turbulent the water is. And so she asks one of the monks to carry her across. And so one of the monks hesitates because there's actually a vow that in this tradition where, not Zen, the Zen tradition, the Theravada tradition, I should say, uh, where monastics aren't supposed to touch people of the opposite sex. So one of the monks hesitates, and the other lifts the woman right up and carries her across the river, sets her down on the other side. Uh, so the woman goes on her way, and then the two monks continue walking. And uh, one of the, the monk who didn't pick up the woman um, uh, starts getting pretty upset, and he's ruminating and kind of fuming, and uh, finally he you know, can't stand it any longer, and he blurts out something like, like, hey, We've both taken this vow, like this really sacred vow, to uh, not touch women, 
And Sue just picked up a woman and carried her across the river. Like, what's up with that? What were you thinking? And the other monk, quite calmly, says, okay, you're right, I did pick up the woman. And I also set her down over an hour ago. So why then are you still carrying her? So often in our lives, uh, we're carrying the memory of something that's long since passed. Maybe a time we were hurt by someone, or we're carrying a resentment, uh, or sometimes we're carrying a memory of a beautiful time, or a beautiful person, or some, a, a time that we want to have happen again, or a person that we wish would come back. Um, and we keep carrying this memory and this longing, and we're actually we're clinging to it in a way and we can't seem to put it down. Um, and even though the actual experience or event passed away a long time ago, um, we're stuck on it in some way. And there's some dukkha, some suffering associated with that. And if we don't let go, what happens? There's nothing moralistically wrong with clinging, it's just that we suffer. As they say, let go or be dragged. It's not fun, right? So. Uh, so sometimes, simply remembering that letting go is possible is sufficient to let something go. It's like, oh yeah, I can just, I can drop this, and it releases. And if that's available to you, fantastic. Do that. More often than not, though, of course, that's not available to us. So what then? So the first practice I'd like to offer you related to letting go is something you do all the time uh, when you sit meditation. So a story, a narrative, um, some circumstance in your life comes to mind, and you release it, letting go back into the body, back to the breath, settling in the present moment. And then maybe a few moments later, it arises again, then you, you let it go. So this is momentary letting go. Um, the story occurs and occurs and occurs, but we keep letting it go. And that's actually really valuable, even though we'd probably prefer for it to release once and for all, um, every time we practice letting go, we're actually strengthening that mu muscle of release. So that's actually, it's, uh, uh, it's like getting some good reps in at the gym. It's a valuable exercise to do. Um, so uh, another practice, maybe the main practice that I'd like to offer regarding letting go is something uh, a little different. Um, it, what I'd, I'd like to call it is, uh, well, maybe I should say it's a, a two-step practice. Uh, recognize and feel. Those are the two steps. So, um, so what are we recognizing? So let's say you've replayed a conversation in your head maybe a zillion times about something that happened with your boss. And so you're, you're just caught in, in thoughts about it, and uh, you know, you're thinking about it while you're doing the dishes, and while you're driving the car, and it just continues to occur. Um, so you might notice, like, oh, there's you know, something's going on here. I keep letting go, but it keeps returning. So at this point, you might ask yourself, is there any wanting or not wanting present? Is there any craving or aversion present for me right now? Because um, what that's doing is we're, we're, we're just, we're turning the mind towards the second noble truth. You know, we're seeing What's, what's going on here? Because often, 
when we're really worked up about something or when something has a lot of, like it's one of our top 10 hits that keeps occurring in the mind, typically there's some craving or, or aversion present. Um, so just to ask that question can help illuminate what's happening. So what we're recognizing is if there's craving or aversion uh, in the mind and heart. So maybe you have this story about your boss and then you go, oh, okay, so, so is craving or aversion present? Oh yeah, okay, this is, you know, I'm, I'm really aversive to the way that my boss um, asks me to do projects, something like that. Okay, so recognition, aversion has been recognized. So if that's all you do, that's actually tremendously skillful. Because what it's doing is it's turning, um, rather than placing the problem out on the objects in the world, on the circumstances and situations of our life, we're actually turning 180 degrees to, to see that the dukkha, that the suffering is here with the aversion itself. Um, and we can't control everything in the world, but we have a lot more say over what happens within us. So that's, it really takes our power back to be able to recognize the desire and aversion within. So we recognize it. And then step two, feel. So we're actually feeling what that's like in the body. We're feeling what the aversion feels like or what the desire feels like. Um, and so that might manifest as temperature, heat or coolness or pressure or tingling or um, any number of sensations. And what, uh, what you'll likely find is that there's often some form of contraction associated with craving and aversion uh, in the body. And the more that we, we experience this, the more we often find uh, that craving and aversion, the physical manifestation of them is actually painful. Like it actually, it's, it's physically uncomfortable to have these feelings. Because fundamentally, what craving and aversion are saying, like if they had a voice, they'd say, this moment isn't okay as it is. It's like the, the anti-contentment. Um, like this, I need something else to, to make this moment better to be happy, or I need to get rid of something right now in order to be okay craving and aversion. So, so there's a fundamental absence of happiness in that tendency of the human mind. And so, so we, we, feel, we feel the experience of the wanting and not wanting and see what that's like so that we condition the mind to, to associate that uh, pain, dukkha, with the craving and aversion. So we actually, actually can see what's happening there. So recognize and feel. Uh, so what I, I think I want to underline most about this is, uh, is why it's important and how it functions. It seems like pretty basic. Okay, okay, aver recognize, aversion is present, feel, okay, it feels like this in the body and I'm just going to stay with the sensations and keep feeling the unpleasantness of this. Like pretty basic. Um, however, what ends up happening when you do this is... Um, when the mind starts to associate, start, starts to recognize that the dukkha is within and it's not in the circumstances, and it begins to associate, begins to realize that there's, that it's, there's suffering associated with craving and aversion, um, the wisdom, the wisdom faculty in the mind heart begins to grow. And when that happens, you don't need to let go of anything. The wisdom lets go. 
So there may be a circumstance, the circumstance with your boss, and when, if you've really fully uh, experienced the dukkha of the aversion, over time the mind heart just goes, this hurts, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I, I don't actually want to generate aversion anymore because it's painful. And what happens is that, that that aversion can actually drop out. It can actually evaporate, such that the same external circumstances taking place, the boss, your boss may be saying the same things, but there's no suffering anymore because the aversion is absent. So the way this functions, it's a little bit like if you were to put your hand on a hot stove and you did it again and again. Um, uh, eventually, your inner wisdom would go, ouch, this hurts, like this, this is not a good idea putting my hand on this stove. And you don't have to like uh, convince yourself to not put your hand on the stove anymore and like, tell yourself why it's a good idea and try to make it happen. It's like, no, the, the hand just knows, don't, it's just not gonna go to the stove anymore, it's not gonna do it. So you don't have to convince yourself, it happens naturally. And so in the same way, when wisdom grows, the wisdom learns to let go and we don't have to. So here's an example just to, to um, explain what I mean a little bit more um, of, of how this happens without volition. So uh, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I developed a disability that impacted my capacity to digest food. And I was very sick for a number of years. And during this time, I probably weighed about 85 pounds, and I was experiencing some flavor of starvation. And so, as you can imagine, there was a lot of suffering. Um, fortunately, I was already a practitioner, and so I knew enough to pay attention to my suffering. If suffering's present, okay, this is ask, something's asking for attention. And so I started to notice, okay, when am I suffering most? And I realized, well, no surprise, when I'm, when I'm eating, eating is a moment where I'm, I really suffer a lot. And okay, so where exactly with eating am I suffering most? Oh, it tends to be the moment when, so you know, I might only be able to eat, you know, a, two bites of food or three bites of food for a meal. And so the, the, the moment that the suffering really peaked was when I'd look at my plate and I'd see all the food that I wasn't able to eat. And in that moment, the moment of sense contact, seeing that, this great flood of suffering would arise. And so this happened, and of course at first it seemed like my suffering was because I couldn't eat. But I, I looked closer, and with this practice, you know, recognizing what's happening, I looked at, is there craving or aversion present? Oh, actually there's a tremendous amount of craving. Like there is no craving like starvation. And so it was deep, deep craving. And so I had no control over that. There's no way I could just invite that to let go and have it let go. That would have been hopeless. Um, but what I could do is I could let it be. I could practice letting be with this experience. So I'd recognize, okay, there's cravings present. And then I'd feel that in the body, just like the intense contraction of it, the longing of it, the unpleasantness of it. And so I really got intimate with that experience of, of craving and dukkha and how they, um, they conditioned each other, that, that those two, um, when, when craving was present, that suffering was present also. 
And so over time, and I really mean over time, it took a number of years, um, the mind shifted and it was, uh, the circumstance totally changed. Um, and maybe I should say the mind totally changed. The circumstance was often largely the same. I might have a couple bites of food for a meal, but I could look at the plate afterwards and the suffering had completely vanished. Absolutely no suffering there. Same circumstance. Nothing's changed, but the craving was gone. That craving after feeling the suffering of it, it's like I touched that hot stove enough times that the mind didn't want to generate craving anymore. So craving was absent. No craving, no suffering. So uh, one of these times when I had finished a meal, I remembered that there was some sort of treat in my fridge, like a piece of cake or something. And I remember like this little like, image of a piece of cake floating across the mind. And that was the moment that in the past it would have been like, oh, cake, that sounds really good. And I kind of want to go have some cake. And then there'd be a bunch of suffering because I couldn't eat the cake and it would hurt my, my stomach. And oh, why me? And this always happens. And, and of course, knowing that that's just like a big dupa train. Uh, instead, like, I saw the mind kind of like, lean towards the cake image in the moment where it would have taken hold and that would have been the moment of grasping and clinging and it just dropped it completely dropped it and the little cake image floated on and disappeared so so in that moment i didn't i didn't say oh may don't don't get into the cake don't start wanting the cake it was completely without volition the mind dropped it on its own So this is what I mean when I say, you don't have to let go, the wisdom lets go. So when you train in being able to really see the true source of suffering, and you get to know that deeply, uh, the wisdom faculty grows. And that can help legislate your capacity to be free in circumstances that are difficult. That That can legislate your ability to release things that you've been hanging on to for years. So, like I said, this letting go practice is really a letting be practice. Letting be is so important. So if, if a snake isn't ready to shed its skin, you can't force it to let the skin go. No matter how much you uh, hate the snake for not shedding its skin, or you resent the snake for not shedding you can't do anything to make the skin shed its sna- or the sk- uh, the snake shed its skin faster. The only way you could do that is if you actually skin the snake. And of course, skinning a snake is a violent act, and we never want to do a violent in- engage in a violent act with ourselves. So, to push ourselves to let go of something before we're let- we're ready to let go of it, that's like skinning the snake. So. We never want to do that with ourselves. We want to be patient with our process. So if we're not ready to let go of something, we want to let it be. We don't want to to, uh, skin the the snake before it's ready to shed. So when we encounter a difficulty that we're hung up on and we feel attached to, um, if we're not naturally letting go, don't go to war with it. Don't go to war with your suffering. If you do, 
Um, so let's say your suffering is because there's something that you're aversive to in your life. Um, if you go to war with your suffering, and, and I mean, it's natural to not want, our, want to suffer. Suffering's painful, of course we don't want it. But if we're bringing not wanting to our suffering, that's aversion, right? So that means we're bringing more suffering onto our existing suffering. So uh, don't create a layer cake of suffering. Uh, it doesn't help. Um, so uh, as much as possible, can you meet your suffering with kindness? Can you meet it with patience? Can you meet it with care? Because if you're bringing aversion to aversion, that's just a mess, right? And it makes it way worse. So we don't really want to do that. And often that's what can come, that sort of aversion to our suffering is what's happening when, uh, when we try to let things go. Because often, like sometimes I'll hear people say, like, wow, can't I just let this go already? And you can hear in that tone, like there's some like, that's just you know, letting go is code for like, can I get rid of this right now? Um, so watch for that. If you're trying to engage in letting go, just watch to see if, if it's like a, a veiled aversion. Because that can happen. And when that does happen, sometimes the most skillful thing we can do is let go of letting go. Sometimes letting go of letting go is exactly what we need to do to be able to let things be. There was a nun who was dying of cancer at uh, Amaravati Monastery in England. And she was having a very difficult time, of course. And at some point she, she was saying, um, I can't let go. I can't let go. And uh, one of the senior monks came, came up to her and he said, if you can't let it go, let it come. Let it come. So this is letting be practice. Don't have to, you don't have to let go of anything. Just be present for things as they are. So in closing, I'll share something from the scholar monk Biku Analio. And he said something like, um, uh, in the fall, a tree lets go of a leaf, no matter how beautiful the leaf. We can tell the difference between a living tree and a dead tree because dead trees hold on to their leaves. And this struck me uh, because in a way, we don't feel fully alive when we're clinging, when we're holding on to our leaves. And sometimes it feels like we're being uh, almost like we're being crushed by the weight of our own craving or uh, we're being poisoned by our own aversion. You know, it's actually um, sometimes to really live most fully, uh, we need to release even the most beautiful of leaves. We need to let go of even, even what's beautiful. And sometimes it feels like our life depends on it. So lastly, this by uh, Mary Oliver. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. 
And when the time comes to let it go, let it go. Thank you. So we're going to take some time to sit now. So go ahead and just slide right back into your meditation. So as you bring this to mind, see if you can connect with it, but not get lost in thought about it. So we're still, we're staying connected to the body, to this present moment, but holding the scenario, the situation, or um, this aspect of our life, just holding it in mind. And we're going to start with the first step of recognizing. So you might ask yourself, is there desire or aversion present? Is there uh, some amount of wanting or not wanting? And you can think through the circumstance of it. What is it that you want or you don't want? that you're clinging to, or holding on to, or rejecting, or pushing away. Frustration, anger, these are, these are expressions of aversion. Greed, grasping, desire, these are elements of craving. So take some time to see what you can recognize.
And in this, we're intentionally engaging the thinking faculty. So we're using thoughts in a skillful way. So if you're able to identify some aspects of wanting or not wanting or both, great. And if not, that's okay too. So we'll now shift to our second step of feeling. So if you're able to connect with that wanting or not wanting, What's it feel like in the body? It may or may not be fully accessible to you right now to really feel the craving or aversion. And if not, you can feel your body anyway. You can habituate the mind to practice this even if the craving and aversion aren't present. So what are we feeling for? We're getting to know what the body's like when the wanting and not wanting are here. So maybe there's a tightness in the the chest, or a clenching of the jaw, a hollowness in the throat, What's it feel like in the chest? Pressure, tingling, heat. How does it feel in the belly? If you're connecting with any unpleasant sensations, 
Can you soften around them, making space for them to be there? It's actually possible to experience unpleasant sensations and not suffer over it. There's no need to be aversive to what's unpleasant. Sensing now the sensations in the face. In the jaw, the forehead. And if you've lost contact with a desire or aversion, that's totally fine. You can continue feeling the body as it is, or you can refresh your connection to it, remembering this circumstance that's difficult. we do this, we're remembering to hold whatever we experience with some level of acceptance or allowing, allowing things to be as they are. have a little time in silence together to play with these these skills to explore this teaching on recognizing and feeling it's fine to use the thinking mind if that's useful and just remembering to keep a short leash on the thinking mind so you don't get too lost And if at any point the exercise is too intense, it's fine to open the eyes a little wider. Just come back to the body, feeling your touch points on the chair, the cushion. Letting go of the reflections and just resting with the breath. a few more minutes to explore in whatever way is useful for you.
wherever you find yourself. We'll now release any reflections on the topic. Releasing the situation you might have had in mind. And just coming back to the breath. Bringing some kindness, some gentleness towards ourselves. Landing back in the here and the now. recognize that um, guided meditations are a little tricky because everyone's experiencing something different. So for some of you, you may have really connected with something and seen the craving and aversion really clearly uh, and felt it in the body. And for others, maybe you weren't even able to think of an initial circumstance. So, um, or maybe you could, but weren't able to identify any craving or aversion. And so whatever happened for you is totally fine. Um, uh, the more important thing than what you were able to connect with in the meditation is that uh, uh, you practice this, um, you engage this practice, because that makes it more likely that you're going to be able to do that on your own. So what I'd like to do now is pivot to uh, the next part of our evening, which is where we'll, we'll have a chance to talk together, uh, talk to each other a bit about the teachings. So, um, the topic for our small groups is um, on what happened for you during the meditation, and if it feels whatever you were working with in the meditation, if that feels a little too intimate, like if that um, experience of suffering that you brought to mind. Uh, doesn't feel like something you want to share, that's totally okay too. And you can either pass or sit out, or you can share about um, um, some smaller form of suffering in your life, um, something that feels more available to talk about. So um, what you'll be sharing is um, uh, what's, this, what's, what's the area of suffering or stress or dissatisfaction? And then um, how'd it go with uh, the recognizing and the feeling. Um, and if you weren't able to access it, can you imagine being able to access it and what that might be like? And what did you notice? So pretty simple. And if there's something else that feels alive around this topic or something else that feels more alive from the talk, 
you can talk about that instead. This is just kind of the, uh, get the conversation going. So what we'll do is we'll get into groups of three, and each person will have three minutes to share. Um, and uh, your practice while you're listening is to see if you can be mindful and embodied while listening, so that you're actually continuing your meditation into these small groups. Um, so yeah, you'll have uh, three minutes per person, and then uh, we have time for a debrief after that. So we'll, we'll see if we have time. Uh, and I'll ring a bell in between each person.